Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle and thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. You can check us out wherever you listen to podcasts, YouTube, Google, Apple, Spotify, uh, plenty of other places. Uh, just click subscribe, rate and review, and I hope you enjoy the uh, episodes that we have for you. You can also check me out at patreon.com backslash sonic cinema. Um, last month, I finally did my podcast on my favorite film scores of 2021. And uh, throughout these, uh, the next few months, there are going to be um, some older reviews that come up and just, just uh, some discussions on film that hopefully you will find interest in. That is patreon.com backslash sonic cinema. So my guest is a longtime guest. He's been he's probably been on the podcast almost maybe more than anybody else at this point. I'm not quite sure if that's true, but it certainly feels that way. And that's never a bad thing because of the fact that it's always a fun discussion, whether we are talking about great movies or we are talking about the absolute uh, trash of the horror genre. And uh, please welcome back to the show, Phil Faso. Thank you very much for joining me again. Thank you for having me. And uh, next time we're talking about the island of Dr. Moreau and I mentioned, hey, we should talk about the bicycle thief instead. You may want to stop me right there. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, so <laughs> so we are we are talking about uh we're we're actually talking about a couple of films from Vittorio De Sica today and uh the neoreal Italian neorealist movement of the 40s and 50s. And uh yeah, it it basically it almost started off as a joke, I feel like be, between us just in private when we were talking about all of these lousy horror movies that we've been talking about over the past couple of years and it's like oh you know what we should do something great like neorealism and it's like yeah i mean we could do that that it basically became oh yeah we really should talk about italian neorealism um i i do kind of feel like we 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 probably might have kept it a joke but honestly i i do love that we're talking about these films because of the fact that they are terrific films they're they are genuinely great films but they're just so depressing um certainly i i certainly feel like these are more worthy of discussion in a lot of ways than something like the island of dr moreau but that's fascinating for a completely different way same with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which was the last movie uh, Phil was on to discuss on the podcast. But I'm I'm still looking forward to this discussion because of the fact that it's it's always interesting to shine light on a filmmaker uh, doing doing something that really gets down to the humanity of the characters, and I I think that that's one of the things that as the the few movies in the neorealist movement i've been able to see uh really really boils down to is that humanity of those characters well i think the interesting thing is that i i was thinking about this yesterday that 
Hollywood in the 30s and 40s and even in the 20s in the silent era, like a lot of the stuff that they were making was larger than life. Yeah. So if you look at some of the characters from that era, Robin Hood, larger than life, you know, the Tin Man and Dorothy and, and the Scarecrow and the, the Cowardly Lion, larger than life. Scarlett O'Hara, larger than life. And then you look at these movies, and this is this is very, very different from the big Hollywood period of the earlier period, because these are like slice of life movies. And unfortunately, well, I shouldn't say unfortunately, they're slice of life movies from Italy in a time where to live in Italy was very depressing. Yeah. You know, you're post Mussolini here, and Mussolini did a lot to screw up Italy. Um, mm-hmm. He was, he got the trains to run on time, but didn't do much else very well, you know? Yeah. So these films are, you know, Italy's in, in a terrible depression here. You know, the, the United States had gone through that before the war. Now we're looking post war here, and Italy's in a terrible depression. They're in a terrible spot post war. And these films, I mean, it's just, it's great because it's, it's really about a country, but it's such a localized, personalized view, each of these films following in the, in the first one, One Man, and then, you know, we'll talk about The Bicycle Thief and One Man and his family, and then in, in the um, Uberto D, it's following One Man and his dog, pretty much. Yeah. So it's taking a very, very broad national thing in Italy and focusing it on one person or one person's life, and I think that Jessica couldn't be much more effective in doing that than he is because these are great films. Oh, they're fantastic films. And uh, yeah, I mean, you you bring that up about Hollywood. And I, I think that is it's it really is interesting to see how 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 much Hollywood leaned into the idea of film as entertainment more than they did film as art. I mean, even well, look- even they were when they were approaching serious subjects, they still looked at it as a populist thing, as an entertainment uh, perspective, as opposed to a real perspective. Even something like, uh, even something like the Grapes of Wrath by John Ford, which is based on Steinbeck about the Great Depression, is ultimately an uplifting Hollywood film in a lot of ways. And this is something the the type of filmmaking that we're seeing in from DeSica here is something we really would not see until the filmmakers of the seventies, eighties and the independent wave of new Hollywood with the Sundance generation and all that would really it wouldn't really come to play until decades later for Hollywood. Well, I mean, even when Hollywood got dark, like Citizen Kane is the perfect example of what I was just talking about. Citizen Kane is, is a dark movie and it's got, it actually does, you know, it's not just entertainment. It does have some issues that it focuses on, but I can't associate with Citizen Kane because I've never been a billionaire paper owner. Right. I can associate with Umberto D because there have been times in my life when I've been out of a job, you know? Yeah. With the bicycle thief because I've been out of a job, you know? So I can associate with those guys on a much better level. And I think that that's the part of it that 
Hollywood was much more con- convinced that it needed to bring people in by entertaining them, like you said, than actually focusing on the art. And I'm glad that you mentioned the 70s, because if you look at American cinema, the 1970s are really the golden era. Mm-hmm. When when you start to focus on things that, you know, are a lot more important than just, you know, don't get me wrong. I love Errol Flynn and Robin Hood, but it's entertainment on just a pure entertainment level. And it's great at what it does, but it's not this, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, um, you know, if you want to get a really quick overview of Italian cinema in the 30s and 40s, and the neorealist uh, era in particular, I cannot recommend enough Martin Scorsese's four-hour documentary, My Voyage to Italy, which is his personal perspective on the Italian cinema that has meant the most to him and inspired him the most. It came out in 1999, or was made in 1999. I didn't see it until 2002, and it's largely unavailable, which is a shame because this and his personal journey with Martin Scorsese through American movies should be readily available. Um, it's it's essential text, I think, for filmmakers, for film lovers and filmmakers who want to see one of the greats just really appreciate what inspired him to do what he's doing and his his approach to these this era of film is very personal because of the fact that these are so many of the films that he is used to he is the son of he is the son or grandson he is the grandson of italian immigrants and so he is he 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 saw some of these movies on TV because his family was watching them and hearing him talk about the filmmaker in particular that we're talking about today Vittorio De Sica it's really interesting the fact that De Sica was one of the bigger stars in Italy and the fact that he took his he took his persona, he took his stardom and turned it into films that are as haunting and as emotionally driven and very visceral in a lot of ways about blue collar individuals and people who are struggling to survive. It's really it's almost to it's almost a noble use of one's star power in a lot of ways. Oh, I'd absolutely say it was a noble use. You know, he took something because I believe he was an actor before, right? Yeah. Yeah. He yeah. he was a huge star in Italy before yeah. the war. And he, and he took that and decided to make movies. And I think if I read correctly, because I, I haven't seen many of his films and I want to deep dive on them now. Uh, but he was making like light comedies at first, and then he decided that, hey, look, I want to do something a little more personal. Yeah. And that's how we end up at The Bicycle Thief, which is considered one of the greatest movies of all time. Oh, yeah. And in the uh, first, you know, voting just happened, just started to happen in the uh, 10 years uh, sight and sound poll for the greatest movies of all time. And the first time that poll came out in 1952, The Bicycle Thief, 
was the number one film. It was, and then in 62 was Citizen Kane. It was basically that until Vertigo 10 years ago. But um, yeah, I mean, he, he was making light comedies. He was a movie star and he, he may have filmed before this uh, called Shine, which looks at uh, basically essentially street urchin kids and kids who are on the outside of society, not necessarily in the same way that the characters in a, uh, High School Thieves and Umberto D are, are, but they're struggling and they don't really, they don't really have a place to go. And <clears throat> Scorsese, you know, one of the things they does in my voyage to Italy, <coughs> and I can see this being a knock on the film, knock on the documentary, but he does, when he talks about film in depth, he does go kind of in depth he doesn't necessarily go beat for beat through the film but he hits all the major points to where you see significant parts of the film but the thing that struck me in watching these films and it's been a while since i had seen bicycle thieves i'd never seen umberto d before preparing for this podcast but i'd wanted to is that The emotional impact of these films completely remains, even though I've seen some of these scenes so many times through watching Scorsese's documentary. Well, I, I want to get into a little more with that when we get to Umberto D, because I told you yesterday, I believe, that so many of the issues in Umberto D are absolutely relevant in America in 2022. Yeah, yeah. Across the Atlantic Ocean and across 60 years worth, 70 years worth of time, these are still relevant issues. And we'll talk about that when we get into that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, if you if you get a chance to pick up My Voyage to Italy or see clips of it on YouTube, I'm sure there are clips of it on YouTube, by all means do so because it is a fantastic film. Especially if you're a big fan of Scorsese's Hugo, because I I look at that film and I look at his two documentaries on American and Italian film as sort of a trilogy in a way of film appreciation. Like Hugo is the one is like the film one oh one course, giving you a bit of an insight and like imparting that love of film. My voyage to Italy or a personal journey with Martin Scorsese is breaking down what genre is and talking about specific filmmakers, techniques, and all of these different aspects of storytelling through film. And then really my voyage to Italy is the graduate course. It's really the one that gets in depth into theme, into store specific examples of storytelling. And it's, it's just a wonderful uh it's it's just a wonderful trilogy it's like it it's it's a great gift from one of the greats that we we need to be taken serious taking seriously well i'm glad you mentioned those to me the other day because i definitely want to check them out i haven't seen either i've seen you go i haven't seen either one of the documentaries but i'm also glad that you mentioned those because knowing that he loves these two films 
puts his context about Marvel movies that he made a few years ago in perfect sense now. Yeah. Because, you know, he said, hey, listen, I don't watch Marvel movies and I don't want to. I don't think they're real cinema. And then you watch Umberto D and you watch Bicycle Thief. And that totally explains to me why he feels that way. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I mean, you know, the, the fact is, it's like I, I wrote a piece about uh, I wrote a piece about it, I think it was last early last year um, after he made his uh, latest uh, comments about with regards to how streaming services and movie studios view sim view film as content as opposed to an art form. And I mean, we're certainly seeing that right now with a major shakeup in what Warner brothers and discovery is doing. And, um, you know, it's essentially proving Scorsese 100% right. I mean, yeah, those movies are essentially that are being pushed off to the side were essentially entertainments and the type of roller coaster movies that he was talking about when he initially made his comments, but at the same time, it's it's the fact that there's a studio willing to take a tack take a loss on never releasing a film for tax break. It just shows you the level of disrespect to cinema that a lot of corporations and a lot of uh, studio execs see now. And, uh, you know, I mean, one of the things that is, one of the things that's unfortunate about the current model is that we're losing the films on, we're really losing the middle tier films and the lower tier films from major studios in a lot of ways. A lot of them are just focusing on big blockbusters. And, I mean, that's a bubble that's going to burst at some point. Well, look, let's just take a look. I'm glad that you brought up the thing about content. and Because I've always read and I've always thought and I've always seen directors talk about it that a film is a reflection of the director's vision, right? So just take a look at what happened with Justice League and how many of the Star Wars movies where you pluck a director out, even even going back to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, that piece of trash that we reviewed <laughs> last time. I think that guy was a week into filming when they fired him and just threw in another director. Like, mm -hmm. you, you can't, like there's no vision to any of this anymore. It's just a commodity now. Yeah. You know, I I, I can say that, you know, I mean... Can you imagine how, first off, can you imagine pulling DeSica out of any either one of these movies and putting somebody else in there and having anything coherent or anything near a vision or anything near the personal statement that he's making with either one of these? I can't. Oh, no, absolutely not. And this this seems like the type of, this seems like the type of movie where he, you you can very much think of the idea that he could have very easily put his own money into this movie to get made. It's that personal to him. Absolutely. You know? <clears throat> and uh, <coughs> it very much is a movie that it is very similar to a lot of movies I've seen in film festivals like Sundance and the Atlanta Film Festival where um, 
you know, they have this they they have this feel of a very personal connection to the filmmaker. Even though obviously other people's money is involved with it, you can tell there's something personal the filmmaker wanted to say with that movie. And that that's completely the case. And it's something that you don't really even even something like Zack Snyder's Justice League, you know, and talking about Snyder, what Snyder eventually was able to make, you know, I, you definitely see the personal stamp of Snyder as a filmmaker. Sure. I don't know that there's anything thematic there that's interesting, though. No, because movies are not, like you said, movies are all content yeah. now. Everything's IP. You know, it's all, hey, listen, we don't want fresh new stories because we don't care about them because all we want to do is pump $250 million into the next Star Wars movie. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I that's mean, what told. yeah. I mean, I was getting into, you know, and I was getting into a discussion with a uh, friend of mine and it's like yesterday about the whole uh, Warner Brothers thing. And it's like, you know, ultimately it is a business. It has always been a business. So, but the fact is we've got executives now who don't really care about the art form. And that's the problem. They don't view it as an art form and say what you will about a lot of the old school uh, studio heads, you know, they, a lot of them cared about the art form and they cared about making movies. And that's something that since corporations and conglomerates have taken over the studios, that's, that's something that's missing. The personal voice and vision of the director is no longer really a thing. Yeah. And this is why I was so happy. Uh, what was it? Five, six years ago, I guess. Five, six, seven years ago, when I started to get in touch with a bunch of the people on the indie New York City film scene, yeah, our friend Jeremiah Kip is how I got into that. Um, but I know so many artists on the smaller micro, micro level who are creating wonderful stuff that has vision and has voice because they're not tied to, hey, listen, we need this remake of the Wonder Years, but we need to make it black and we need to make it, we need to get shot, you know, it's yeah. not like that. Yeah. They can whatever they feel they need to make this personal voice and they can make personal statements because there's not some studio head saying, Hey, this doesn't have gremlins in it. I told you gremlins, that's an IP, <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, you know, <coughs> and think about, and it's fascinating to, to bring, to bring these, this conversation sort of back to neorealism and just, merging the idea of spectacle with personal vision you know i mean in a lot of ways what the neorealism movement of de sica of roberto Rastellini, of early fellini and of many other filmmakers they were reacting to as you mentioned post mussolini italy what and it was basically and this is something that Scorsese says in the documentary, it's essentially a prayer to the, a cry to the rest of the world that 
just that essentially is saying just because our leaders led us down this dark path, it doesn't reflect the people. And the people of Italy are struggling. You know, the same impulse that neorealism came out of is very much the same impulse that brought the first Godzilla. Because the first Godzilla is a reflection on the Japanese state of mind after the nuclear bomb was dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That is exactly where that came from. And, you know, the idea that you can't have a message in a big movie or you, you know, and certainly there are big movies that have larger messages in them. There are, of course, movies that do that. But the gulf between the ones that do versus the most that don't is widening more and more. Well, I mean, I don't want to ever talk about that Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie again, but let's be honest. Toby Hooper's 1973 or 74 Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a very personal movie. Mm-hmm. And it's dealing with it's dealing with post Vietnam. It's dealing with people who are out of work, unable to feed themselves, and they start cannibalism. Whereas this new one that we watched and we talked about this, as I said last time, has twenty seven ideas it wants to cram in and doesn't say anything real about any of them. No, no. Whereas, whereas I watched Umberto D the other day, and I'm like, wow, this is a statement about here's a guy who's I guess I'm going to say mid-50s, maybe. I'd say somewhere around that age. Probably. Maybe 60. Yeah, I mean, I, got, I would say about 60s. But yeah, I mean, I could see 50s yeah. as well. Maybe, maybe, he's, maybe he's early 60s. And, you know, he's, he's lived his entire life. He's worked. He's done what he's supposed to do. And now he's supposed to be on his pension. And now his pension's getting cut. And yeah. now he can't afford to live. Yeah, he can't go back to work because he's too old and he's already retired and he can't live off his pension. So what do you do in that case? Mm-hmm. You know, that mm-hmm. is a very real thing. And that's a personal statement. And like you said, Italy's struggling at that point. Yeah. And this movie isn't really just about I love I love the, the fact that these two films, I think the greatest thing that I took out of both of these films was I could associate with the leads in both of them mm-hmm. i could feel for them but i could also understand that each of these guys is just a representative of thousands and thousands of people across italy who are going through the same thing as these guys are yeah yeah and the way that you brought you know and you 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 know and you brought up the fact that you know in a lot of ways, what Italy was going through at this time is very similar to what America was going through over a decade earlier in the Great Depression. And, I mean, it's universal. It's completely universal. Um, before we start to get into the films in general, though, specifically, though, I do want to say that, you know, when you were talking about, when we were talking about personal voices in films, you know, you were you were talking about plugging and, you know, taking out Vittorio's De Sica and putting in somebody else that you couldn't really do it. It it 
made me think of a discussion that we're going to have in our next episode in a couple months where there is there's almost there's a certain aesthetic from one of the filmmakers that has made that conversation of authorship very complicated for that particular movie. You and I know differently, and we're going to discuss that, yes. but <laughs> it's, it's, it's one that has been controversial over the past four decades. Sure. But let's go ahead and get started. And, we're we're going to begin by talking about 1958's bicycle thief, and we we've we both have called it the bicycle thief because honestly, that's what we knew it as, have known it as for a long time, and uh, it's only been recently where it feels like the, what I would imagine is the original Italian title has really started to re itself. It's the title that you'll find on uh, streaming services. It the Criterion Collection uh, disc is goes under Bicycle Thieves, and it's an interesting little switch because once you think about it in the context of the film, it makes a lot of sense that that plural is there. Because it's not necessarily, in the end, it's not necessarily just about one thievery of a bicycle. It's actually about two when you boil down to it. Yes. And I've always known it as the bicycle thief. And I think when you change the title like that and put the plural on it, it puts it in a perspective that makes you look at them. It's still the same movie, but I understand why they would go with the plural on that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this is a movie about uh, a man named uh, Ricci, who is a father and a husband, and he is he's out of work. And the first time we see him, he's in with this sea of workers waiting to see if a job is going to open up for him. And uh, he... And uh, it's it's interesting that you know that I think is a scene, that I think is something that we've seen over the years in popular popular entertainment, TV shows, and movies talking about unemployment or people. You know, there's always this there's kind of this cliche about people like gathering outside of like hardware stores and stuff like that with people trying to find workers for the day workers and all that stuff um so i mean it it's something that i think in popular culture we're aware of but we don't necessarily under we don't i think it's to a certain extent it feels more like a dramatic thing than actually a real thing and i think one of the things that's nice about this movie is it makes it feel a bit real in uh doing that but he gets a job. Um, a job opens up for him. Uh, make uh, posting uh, posters throughout the city. Uh, the catch is he needs a bicycle, and he pawned his bicycle for money. So after they get the money to get back the bicycle, uh, 
he starts out and the bicycle is stolen. And he basically is the the rest of the movie is essentially him and his son Bruno walking the street trying to find the thief and trying to find his bicycle. And it's it's that simple. It's the the thing that I love about this movie and both of these movies is their really disarming simplicity and the way that they the way that they focus on these stories of people who are just trying to survive and people who are just and they're regular people. These were not necessarily actors DeSica was casting. Like these were these were actual people who probably had experience is very similar to what they're acting out in these movies. And the the performances are so natural. You know, it's hard to there you know, the it's a common thing now for us to see directors, you know, take on take on directing projects and stuff like that, but it's it feels like it's very it's usually, you know, they they build up to these bigger projects whereas somebody like Destika, he's just telling general stories. Uh, very, very simple stories and keeping in that. And I think that's something that's really beautiful in what he does in these films. I want to point out something real quick because you gave a great summary there. And I just want to point out one specific, actually two specifics. First off, his wife and he decided to sell their sheets to get the bicycle back. So, I mean... I went to bed last night and I slept on a bed with sheets because that's what normal people do. You know, it's yeah. that's normal procedure across the world. Yeah. So here's a very real thing where they've got to sell something that's a common and they only have one set of sheets, apparently. Mm. It's not like it's not like, you know, I know I have multiple sets of sheets and, and blankets for my bed. You know, but this is a family that has one set of sheets. So I, we talk about stakes sometimes in movies. That's a real stake because he's got to sell something that is part of his, you know, his his world there. And it seems so small and you may take it for granted, especially modern audiences who haven't been to any kind of poverty might take that for granted. Yeah. But I think that's a great, I think that's a great touch, you know, that he's got a point of sheets. The other thing I wanted to point out is you see him putting up some posters and he's putting up posters of, and Roger Ebert pointed this out because I read his great review, his uh, great movies review. Mm-hmm. He pointed out that he's putting up posters of Rita Hayworth, which is the exact opposite. That's the studio system. That's the big glitzy entertainment that we're talking about. Yeah. So that's a contrast to what he's living through because he's putting up these posters for people that are going to go and escape life by seeing a Rita Hayworth movie and try to get away from dealing for two hours with what he's dealing with by having to buy his bike back and then having it stolen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the social, the very simple social commentary in this movie is just fantastic. And the idea of reporting the theft and the fact that there's a bureaucracy that goes towards that. And, you know, it's something that unfortunately doesn't necessarily, hasn't necessarily changed over the years, which is the idea that 
you know, just because you report something like that doesn't necessarily mean anything's going to happen to it. And the fact, and you're right, the idea that they have to sell their sheep to to get money for him to work, that is that that is another piece of social commentary. This idea that the social safety net is so non-existent for these people that you have to give up something for comfort to just feel like you can still live in a certain degree of comfort by having a job. And I mean, that's all throughout the film and the, the scene where later uh, Ricci and Bruno get food and he basically gets them a very simple meal and they're near a family that is eating very well. And, you know, he, he has this offhanded comment where he says, oh, well, you know, you, you have to make a lot more money to eat like that. And Bruno puts the food down, but his dad is like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Eat. Just don't worry about it. Just eat. It's important for you to eat. That's the thing. It's more important for you to eat than to worry about me. And um, I, I think there's, there's such tenderness in the way that uh, Desica and Cesar Sabatini, who was the screen, one of the screenwriters on this, and is the screenwriter on Umberto D. Um, the way that they tell these films, this is these are like parables. These are these are like parables that you would hear in a church. As much as they are movies, they just have to be told through the language of film. Yeah, I think that's a great point, and I just keep coming back to the fact that these two films have just such humanity in them, and such pathos, and such you know. I can empathize with these guys. I can feel for them. I can feel for the kid. I can feel. I can feel for Umberto's dog. You know. Yeah. Like. Oh, we're gonna that... get to that one because yeah, yeah, that that is. <laughs> There, there's a whole bit different conversation to be had with uh, Umberto D in that regard. Um, but the whole thing is that, you know, this is humanity, and this is humanity falling here, and this is humanity trying to pull itself up by its bootstraps and pick itself up and get back to life, you know? You know, and the thing is, it's like the family, because of the fact that the wife is willing to sell the bed sheets, for him to get to get back the bicycle. The fact that Bruno is willing to make this journey with his father. And at the beginning, you have his friends going around town with him trying to find the bicycle. You know, but they they eventually leave. They eventually leave the film and ultimately it's it's his responsibility and it's ultimately down to him. So that's where having the support of his wife, having the support of Bruno, she doesn't get upset with him in terms of losing the bicycle, you know, and that would be the easy dramatic play, but she is, she understands what that means. 
Bruno understands what that means, and so what, and then what Bruno ends up seeing later in something that, in uh, almost the final punchline, I guess you could say, of this film, and the the ironic twist of fate of this film is you can understand the choices that Ricci has made. You can understand where everybody is coming from in this film because ultimately everybody is in the same position. It's not about judging. It's not just about judging people for love the people in this movie. Even the guy who steals his bike, I mean, we never really find out a backstory but I don't think this is a big criminal syndicate that this guy's a part of. No. I just think that he probably needs the bike just as badly as, as Rishi does. Yeah. He probably needs that bike to, to thrive and survive. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's turned him to a criminal act. And, you know, I mean, I can't, I can't justify the act, but I can see why I can, I can understand why he'd steal a bike, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think, you know, and look at the old man that Richie saw the thief with, you know, look at what they do. They, they follow him to a soup kitchen and a church service and they're harassing him. His, and he's harassing him. And it's like people, the people at the soup kitchen are like, leave him alone. What are you doing? But at the same time, we understand why, because he's trying to get answers that he needs. But at the same time, he's doing it in a way that it's it's hard to defend. It is kind of hard to defend that, but we understand it. And that's the thing that is so, that's ultimately the thing that is so beautiful about both of these films. And that is, is that, and that's one of the things that is so interesting about neorealism in general, is that it doesn't ask us to... it, And you can see why Scorsese was so influenced by these, because it doesn't ask us to endorse the behavior that we're seeing. But at least it asks us to understand it and to maybe empathize with it when it comes to these characters. And you can see that as something that Scorsese took to heart in so many of his films. I think that these films also are not asking us to judge. Nor a lot of times with, with movies with, you know, criminals and stuff like that, they're asking you to make a moral judgment about the characters. Yeah. Hey, listen, these are bad people or whatever. Hey, normally movies, I mean big tentpole sci-fi, horror, whatever, big movies nowadays, they have heroes and villains. There's no villains in this thing. It's just people. There's people who commit wrong actions and right actions, and they have their own justifications for everything they do. And the ultimate justification is survival. Yeah. Just making it through the day, being able to feed your family, Mm -hmm. being able to have bed sheets, you know? Like there were no villains in this. And even in Umberto D, I mean, you get a pro, uh, you get an antagonist in the landlady, and we'll talk about that later. Yeah. But He's not really a villain. I mean, there are no real villains in these things. They're just people trying to get by. The villain is ultimately the system that is failing these individuals. And oh, absolutely. I mean, that's that's basically the overwhelming villain is the system that led to these conditions. And that is that's what makes them so potent. 
I mean, you know, it's the same thing that you can say, you can say the same thing about Goodfellas. You could say the same thing about the Wolf of Wall Street. No, what those characters are not, are doing is inherently wrong in a moral standpoint, but I understand why they make those choices. I completely understand why they make those choices. And that's the type of thing that you can, where you can make, you can see the connection as to why Scorsese connects so much to these and what he brings to his own work. Well, just take a look at Taxi Driver. Taxi Driver, you know, Travis Bickle, I don't want to, I don't even want to judge Travis Bickle here because Travis Bickle does a lot of stuff that, you know, would, would be, you know, you'd look at this and say, this is immoral, this is wrong, but he's a, he's a product of that society at that point, you know? Yeah. yeah. So I think that Martin Scorsese did a great job in taking his influences here and wearing them on his sleeves in a lot of his films there. And, you know, we're talking about Goodfellas, Wolf of Wall Street, um, Taxi Driver. These are all great, great films. And I'm so glad that Martin Scorsese was able to carry that forward and in the 70s and 80s and 90s make something new out of this material. The, the whole the whole idea of the system is what's wrong, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, just because of the fact that his movies focus on violence just because just because a lot of his movies focus on violence just because a lot of his movies focus on immoral behavior does not necessarily mean that he endorses that behavior he's not he's just he's looking at at lens and asking us to go what is why is this behavior accepted why would you accept this behavior why would the characters accept these behaviors and i mean you know you can the the great thing about goodfellas is is about the story of henry hill's rise and fall yes that is the basic premise but why is the world that he goes into so appealing to him it's because it affords him the chance to live a life that he's not going to be able to live if he follows the same rules that his parents did. Sure. And you you understand that. You understand why, even if you don't agree with why. No, it's totally... I, I'm glad in Goodfellas, because I watched it recently after... Because um, I hadn't seen it in ages, and I watched it recently after um, Ray Liotta died. Mm-hmm. And you see the, the glitz at the beginning, and I'm glad they have those scenes of Henry Hill as a kid. Because you see his parents living basically middle-class suburbia. Yeah. And right across the street, there's that glitz and there's that glamour and there's all that money. And you see why with a 12, 13, 14-year-old kid that you look at that and say, hey, that's the life I want to live, mm-hmm. not the one I got to go home to. You know? Yeah. And, you know, I mean, to bring it back to Bicycle Thieves, you know, the end of this movie, there, there are things that Richie does in this movie that are not defensible. He, at one point, he gets so frustrated with Bruno that he hits Bruno. Doesn't he? Yes. And you know, Bruno lets him know, "I, I, I, I do not like that you did this." You know, he he stands up for himself, and he 
he makes it difficult for Ricci to to get back that trust that he lost with that action. You know, and then but eventually he does get that back that trust and that's when they go to the restaurant. And then the end of the movie that we've kind of talked about but not specifically has Ricci doing he Ricci is stealing a bicycle in his own right. He's so desperate at this point that he steals a bicycle outside of what looks like a soccer match. And he gets tra- chased down and he gets chastised for it. But even though the characters were chastising him, they they don't understand why he does it. We do. And that doesn't mean that we agree with it. It just means that we understand that story. And seeing what seeing and the fact that Bruno is with him and the fact that Bruno is you know crying to him that is that is ultimately his salvation because of the fact that he he could have, he probably was going to jail at that point if it wasn't for Bruno well not only that i mean i always looked at it as even if he had gotten away with it and even if he had stolen the bike and and gone back to doing what he was doing with the posters like is it goes there's multiple strains there because He's stealing the bike now, and he's doing to someone else who probably needs that bike exactly what was done to him earlier in the film. Oh, yeah. And then it's even worse because he's doing this right in front of his son. So what kind of moral lesson is he imparting? Yeah. I understand that. I understand that. I don't want to judge him. I don't. Mm -hmm. But I also understand that now he's saying to his son, Hey, listen, we got stolen from, so now it's okay to steal. And I think that the best thing to happen to him and his family and his son is it gets caught. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It has to end the way that it ends because of the fact that as as sad as it is, as as bleak of an ending as it is, it's the one it ultimately it it sets it sets right the morality of the universe because of the fact that he doesn't get away with it and he's ultimately shamed himself in front of his son. Uh, But at the same time, you, you still empathize with him because you understand the choice and you, but you also, you also don't want him to get away with it. Because that do- you're right, it does send the wrong message. And then every time I reach the end and we go through all that, I'm always thinking that now the next day he's got to get up, he's got no bicycle, he's got no sheets, and he's got to find a job again. Yeah. And that is the truth. I, I've watched this movie, I think, three times in my life. Mm-hmm. Once, the first time I ever saw it, because my friend Chris gave me this, it was an entertainment weekly, like, but it wasn't a magazine. It was a book. And it was like their ranking of the hundred greatest movies of all time. Yeah. So I started to check out the foreign ones, Jules and Jim. And I checked out, I checked out the bicycle thief and I cried at the end. And every time I watch this, I cry at the end because it's not like there's a nice tidy bow on the end of this. There's a redemption arc 
but he's got to go right back to the same thing. He's going to wake up on a bed without sheets. He's not mm-hmm. going to have a bicycle, and now he's got to go find a job again because that's the reality of it. Yeah, and that is why it's such a depressing, <laughs> depressing yeah. Yeah, he's no, I mean he he's in a worse spot now than he was before yeah. because he doesn't know where his bike is. And you're right, he doesn't have sheets and he has to do this all over again. And it really that's why I think it's one of the most authentic it's one of the most authentic films about what it's like to live in poverty i i think we've ever gotten from a filmmaker and that's what makes it all the more crazy that desika is this huge movie star he probably you know it's it's it'd be interesting to see if he ever had a day in his life where he had felt like he had he lived like this sure but there's a natural empathy he has for normal people that I think is something that it it's it, it it's not it's genuine with him you feel like through these films it's genuine you know it doesn't feel like you know perfunctory oh I'm going to do something to you know celebrate the general you know the general public who struggles you know I'm, it's not performative. It's it's natural from him, and I I think that's one of the things that's so beautiful about these films. I think that was one of the great, like, no studio would ever allow you to take a Star Wars movie and pull a guy off to like, no no director is going to be able to go to to Disney and say, look, I want to make a Star Wars movie, but I want to put Brian Scuttle in the lead, and he's got this short little film that he made. He does some music stuff, but he's never been an actor, <laughs> you know. Yeah. No, that's never going to happen. And I think that the fact that he was using real people who, like you said earlier, even if they weren't going through exactly what these characters are going through, they see it around them every day, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. You know, and they understand it because that's where the society is. Well, I mean, even, I that, yeah, I mean, even, I mean, even look at the Grapes of Wrath that came out yes. like eight years before this. I mean, that, that is a studio film. It's not a film. It, it doesn't have nobody's in it. It's, it's got major <laughs> stars in that film by one of the most celebrated directors in Hollywood history. Sure. And that's why there's an artifice to that as a, as opposed to me watching this. Yeah. Cause if you pulled, if you pulled away the music and you pulled away some of the transaction uh, transitions and you made it, like if the if the film if the actual film quality were a little grittier and not so so you know clear, you could have convinced me that Bicycle Thieves was a documentary and I would have believed. Yeah. Yeah. Very yeah, much so. Absolutely. Yep. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, I I will say the score is the is really beautiful in this film. I, I love the scores. It's such a it's such a haunting and simple theme, but it's such a beautiful film theme too and it really plays so much to the sadness and the emotional aspects of this film that is real helps really make it profound it's funny because now every time we discuss a movie that we're going to talk about on a future podcast now when i'm watching that particular movie i pay special attention to the score because i want to talk about the score every time now because of your interest 
Oh, we're gonna have we're gonna have so much fun in a couple months talking about music. <laughs> it's it's gonna be so much fun. I cannot wait. Um, I I'm actually. I'll, let's put it this way: October is gonna be a big year, big month for uh, talking about movie scores on the Sonic Cinema podcast, not just with Phil, but with others. I I cannot wait. It's gonna be so much fun. Um, right. but yeah, Bicycle Thieves is, it's, it's really a beautiful film. It's, it's a haunting film. If you haven't seen it, it's on Criterion Channel. It's on HBO Max, at least for now. Uh, we'll, we'll see what it's, we'll, we'll see what it's like in the future, but, uh, it's, and it's, it's on the, it's in the Criterion Channel, rightfully, Criterion Collection, rightfully so. It, it's a tremendous film. Um, that, that brings us to the second film we're going to be talking about, which is another one by Vittorio De Sica and Cesar Sabatini, the screenwriter in 1952's Umberto D. And, uh, this one, it pairs very nicely with Bicycle Thieves. Yeah. It really does. Yeah. Thematically. It's taking a different angle on it, but you couldn't, you couldn't talk two more films that are perfect together, I think. Oh no. I mean, yeah, it's it's a it's a perfect uh, dovetail and you can definitely tell that the same creative pairing is responsible it, for yeah. both. I mean, you you sure. can you you can see that. Um this is a movie that Desika dedicated to his father and it is the story of a former bureaucrat named Umberto who is like you said earlier, he his pension is being cut, and he's and it's causing him great economic strife. He's un, he lives in a single room apartment with his dog Flack, um or Flick. I it sounds like Flag in the in the movie. It, it sounds like Flag, but I think it's like Flack or something like that. Uh, no, it's really interesting because I used to, I took six years of Italian between middle school and high school. And there's no K in the Italian language in the in the Italian alphabet. The <laughs> subtitles make it fleek F I F L I K E. Yeah. So I don't yeah. know who did the subtitles, but I think it was supposed to be flag. Yeah. It sounds yeah. like flag. It really does. Um yeah. but uh and because of his financial issues with his pension, he is behind on his rent and his landlady wants to get rid of him. He she continues to raise the rent on him, and my God, if that isn't as current a uh, topic nowadays that we were discussing in these movies, I don't know what is. But she's he, basically she's basically Airbnb his room to couples to have sex in while he's out. Yeah, yeah, basically. <laughs> It it really is. I mean, you hear them, you you hear people singing, but the implication is very clear that they're that yeah. I mean, they're they're having sex, um, and uh, he's he he's just trying to live. He's just he's not blowing through this money wantonly. He's not just living an extravagant lifestyle. He's just trying to live, and he is. Eating at a soup kitchen, kitchen, uh, he has to um, he has to feed flag under the table, 
And when he gets sick, he calls the ambulance for himself, and uh, he has to leave Flag. And from there, it leads us to a chain of events that basically brings us to a place where um, it basically is Umberto's emotional downward spiral and realizing that he's and getting to a point where he's not sure they can continue anymore. I, you know, it's one of the first things that really struck me watching this. This, like I said, this was my first time watching the film. Um, it really does play as an interesting companion piece to Akira Kurosawa's Ikiru, which also came out in 1952. And uh, if you haven't seen that film, it's a tremendous film. Uh, it's a great. It's one of the great ones from Kurosawa. It is about an old man who knows he is dying, and he is determined to do one meaningful thing in his life. And he is a lifelong bureaucrat, but he doesn't really do anything. And the thing that really connects the two for me, and it's interesting that we have these two very different filmmakers who are approaching the the hopelessness of the system that their characters are in from different perspectives. One is a man who knows he is dying, who wants to do something meaningful in his life and with what life he has left. And the other one is just trying to live, but is also being beaten down by the system around him. And it, it leads to so many, like I've, I've seen the, I've watched my voyage to Italy. I don't know how many times it's at least, six or so times it's it's a long sit but it's one that i do every couple of years um because of the fact that i just am so enthralled by what scorsese saying i so i've basically seen the ending of umberto d multiple times and this this film still crushed me watching it it still moved me to tears watching it I could absolutely see that because, again, I was crying at the end. So apparently DeSica has that effect on me, yeah. which is not a terrible thing. <laughs> uh, but I want to start off with this by saying that this movie starts with a rally yeah, in the streets. And I put this on for the first time a week ago, and I thought I was watching something from 2020. Because mm-hmm. as you know, in our society, there have been all sorts of rallies the last couple of years. Um, and that made it very current to me. And then, I mean, there's all sorts of stuff in this movie that just rings true for, I'm not bringing up his name, but our previous president's regime and what it has done to this country. Yeah. So you have, you have a rally that starts it off. You have a woman who is unmarried and pregnant. Mm-hmm. You have, um, you have housing issues. You have issues with, um, healthcare and i'm just like oh my god it's like the secret just looks 70 years into the future in america and said wow guys this is what you have to look forward to yeah yeah so they're rallying and they actually have a good reason to rally because they're trying to get their pensions back in full mm-hmm. and then like the, the police i believe it's the police come and disperse it right because yeah. i know it gets yeah. dispersed and then a couple of the guys run off so they don't get arrested and 
he's upset. Umberto is upset because they didn't have a um, permit for the rally. Yeah. And the guy says, one of the other guys, one of the other older guys says, listen, we applied for one and they wouldn't give us one. Because why would why would Italy, why would any local authority in Italy want to give people a legal reason to get together in the streets, unite, and complain about money that they're never going to get because Italy's not giving it to them? Yeah, yeah. So that's where you start. That's the starting point. And I think that one of the things I love about these films is the simplicity you talked about earlier, because in a Hollywood movie, this would have been a big thing. There would have been brawls and there would have been screaming and big speeches. There's none of that. Yeah. There's just these guys getting dispersed and talking about, oh, my God, you know, this didn't work. Mm -hmm. Like, we're not getting our money now. And there's this common theme through the film where Umberto keeps trying to sell his watch. Because obviously, you know, again, we go back to the bedsheets thing. You might say, I mean, all of us have, I'm talking to you on my phone right now, right? Yeah. All of us have phones now. All of us have phones that I can take my phone out of my pocket and just click on it and look at any any point in the day I can see what time it is. Yeah. It's one of the billions of conveniences that my cell phone gives me, right? Mm-hmm. Including the ability to record this podcast. So the thing is that I think people might take for granted that he's trying to sell his watch because... Number one, he really doesn't have much back in that time. You know, if you look at what, once we get to his apartment, you'll see he's living a very Spartan lifestyle. And number two, like watches used to be of much more prominence before cell phones. And you'd really need it if you want to catch the train on time, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, So there's all this, he sets the stage very early for what's going on in Umberto's life. And it's just, it's brilliant in its, is brilliant in its simplicity, Brian. Yeah. And, and the thing that I, and the thing that is so interesting to me is, you know, you, you, you know, I mean, the, the pension being cut is, I mean, you can completely tie that into what's been, the issue with social security over the years in this country and the fact that, you know, taking money from that to pay for this other stuff that we probably don't necessarily need like billions and billions of dollars going to the military, but, um, you know, it's, or paying for billionaire act cuts. And it's basically one of those things where it's like, like like you said, it's basically oh why why would we give you this money? We we need this money. Uh, it's it's all about the powerful wanting to exert their power on on the people who are helpless, like Umberto. And uh, you know, I mean, look at the scene where he does call the ambulance on him. He's and he's he's got a justifiable reason because he's getting a fever, but at the same time and. And I do like the fact that that doesn't become a thing where, oh, he's worse off than he really is. It's just that he genuinely needs to get looked at. And this is the only way for him to do it. But also it gives him a sense of comfort to be able to be there for a little bit longer, knowing that the alternative could be him on the street sooner rather than later. And uh, well, that's learned, something. He that's, learned, that's something. He learned, very, 
he learns very quickly from the guy next to him how to cheat the system. Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. I thought was kind of, I laughed at that because this guy's like, hey, listen, get a rosary and a rosary will buy you some more time. Yeah. yeah. They'll, they'll be willing to give you more time if they think you're a devout Catholic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that was very witty. But going back to the pension thing, I mean, I felt when I was watching that movie, that hit me personally because I had an uncle who was with the U.S. Postal System out on Long Island for years, decades. And in the 80s, Reagan came along and he, he cut their pension. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, like, all of a sudden, all the postal workers, and of course, America hated Ronald Reagan because, hey, listen, we've been doing this for decades. We're breaking our backs out there. Like, my uncle wasn't, my uncle wasn't, he was on a foot route. So he'd be he'd be putting pressure on his knees, carrying that heavy mailbag every day, five days, six days a week. And he had a second job on top of that because you live on Long Island. Long Island's not cheap. Got to make ends meet, you know? Yeah. So I'm like, when, when I think with the pension getting cut hit, that was the first thing that I thought. My uncle went through that back in the 80s, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's just like, you work your entire life and it's supposed to be, hey, when you get to your golden years, society will take care of you. Yeah. Society does not take care of people in the golden years. You know, we have to worry. I'm, I'm 50, I just turned 50 a couple of weeks ago. I have to worry by the time I retire if Social Security is even going to exist anymore, Brian. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I'm I I just turned forty five yesterday. It's like I'm yeah. so it's like, yeah. I mean, I it's 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 really scary what this is going to be like in in fifteen twenty years. I mean, yeah, you just don't know. I mean, you know, presuming we're all alive and we haven't completely wiped ourselves out as species by this point. But, um, you know, the, the fact is, it's like, no, and you brought up the maid earlier, which is, it, it's, it's a great illustration of a different perspective of the struggle that people like Ricci and people like Umberto are going with, going through. Because she is, like you said, she's a single woman who is expecting to get pregnant, or who's pregnant, and she knows that if the landlord finds out that she's pregnant, she's going to be out of a job. And she she doesn't even know. I'm sorry. And she doesn't even know who the father is. So there's this running back and forth of, she knows it's one of these two soldiers that they see out the apartment window every day. And, you know, going back and forth and stuff like that. I mean, it's part of the fabric of the film, but also it, it really does speak to, you know, it, it speaks to the fact that women, some women in this, uh, in culture just don't have that security. No, because as soon as she gets pregnant, she's going to have the same worry. As soon as, as soon as the landlady finds out she's pregnant, Maria, the maid is going to have the same issues that Umberto is going through right now, that she's going to be on the street and how is she going to support herself and how is she going to live? Yeah. And there's even a discussion about that later. She says to him, Hey, look, once I get, you know, once, once, once she finds out I'm pregnant, I'm going to get fired. I'm going to be out of here. You know? Yeah. So I just need to do what I can do in the meantime. But the funny thing is that Maria just kind of takes it day by day and she's living. Hey, listen, I can, I can live right now. Look, there's ants in this apartment building, and oh my god, the situation with the ants is just disgusting, Brian. (laughs) Yeah. 
you know, the place is infested with ants. She's got to light a broom on fire to try to get rid of the ants. And, you know, it, it's just that it, it's, but the thing is that those two can call that place home for the time being. Mm-hmm. And the thing is they have each other. So Umberto has a very small social circle. And you realize once he meets people in the street that all the people that he thought he had connections with really don't care about him at all. No, no. Like, I mean, one, one of the people from his social class, an older elderly gentleman who's in the same group, and those guys seem to be, for the, for the most part, better off than he is, but nobody wants to help him because they don't care. Yeah. You know, Maria actually cares, and Fleek, the dog, cares. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you know, he, the, the dog is just as depend is dependent on Umberto. Yeah, and, that's... you know, there's the sequence after he goes to the uh, hospital where he flag uh, disappears. He flags run out because of the fact that the landlord, the landlady is basically trying to get him out and she doesn't care about flag. She just, you know, if it if it gets Umberto out a bit quicker, that's what she's going to do. And there's this, uh, you you see him at the kennel, and at the uh, you you see him in he sees the room where they kill the dogs, and uh, you there's that's a great deal of suspense, and it's it's something that's very artificial. But I mean, every person who has ever lost an animal or as run who is worried about an animal a pet is going to understand that situation and going to oh, understand the emotional the emotions that Umberto is going through absolutely and I think that like even down to the end I mean Fleek is his best friend I'd say yeah I'd say it's fair right yeah you know, Very they depend so. on and there's a point where he tries to sell Fleek. Well, he doesn't really try. I guess he's going to take money from him, but he's trying to put Fleek in a better space. And he ends up at that family that has like 27 dogs. Yeah. And you could tell they don't take care of the dogs. And he ends up not leaving him there because he knows that Flag's going to be in a much worse position than he is with him out on the street at that point. You know? Yeah. Well, and at that point. At that point in the film, and we'll just go ahead and get into it, Umberto's basically realized that there's nothing else he can do. He doesn't feel like there's anything else he can do. So he is almost resolute to end his life. And, yes. you know, it's never explicitly said in the film, but that's the implication when he's looking out the window you see the hammer focus in on the on the uh ground on the pavement and you you understand that's where umberto's head he he doesn't see any other path for him than to take his own life and so he's he's trying to get rid of flag because of the fact that he doesn't he he wants to make sure that flag is all right. And yes, the first place he goes to is that that family basically boards dogs, but like you said, they don't really take care of them. Then he goes. Then he goes to the park and he comes across 
a little girl who's played with Flag, and he he says, oh, Flag is yours. There's no catch, not asking for any money. You know, this is he's he's a great, well-behaved dog, which we've seen. And, you know, just take care of him. And the uh, governess uh, for the little girl says, no, I we we can't do that. And, oh, God, the ending of this just absolutely wrecks me because of the fact that first he tries to hide from Flag. Obviously, Flag is too smart of a dog for that, so he can't do that. And then he does something that is almost unthinkable, or he tries to do something that is almost unthinkable. And it's the one thing, it, it's like with Ricci taking the bite at the end. It's this decision that makes sense when you think about it with the character because the character the character wants Flag to be in a better place. And at that point, the only other place he can think of is Heaven. With with him in the afterlife. Yes. And yes. and what happens, and again, it boils down to the fact that Flag is his salvation, much like Bruno is Ricci's. And yes. it's just, oh God, the ending of that and the the breaking of the trust and the fact that it takes a little bit for Flag to to for him to convince Flag that he's in a better emotional place now than he was. Well, I think the important thing is that when he goes to because he's going to jump in front of a train. Yeah. He's going to kill himself that way. And he decides that, I totally agree with your take on that, that, hey, listen, the only place that flag would be better, because obviously no one wants him here, just like nobody wants me, I can take him to heaven with me, because as we know, all dogs go to heaven. Yeah. <laughs> I can take him to heaven with me, and and he'll be in a better place than he's in now, because I love flag, and I don't want to see him go through what I'm going through, being yeah. rejected, not having a home at all. But I think the fascinating thing is, because I had no idea. I, I You've seen the ending. I'd never seen the ending before. I really thought he was going to kill himself. And then you see the train rushing by, and Flag is terrified. Yeah. And I think yeah. the fact that Flag is terrified is what wakes Umberto up mm -hmm. to the mm -hmm. fact that, hey, you know what? I shouldn't be doing this to my dog, and I shouldn't be doing this to myself. Yeah. Because this is not the way to go. And if he doesn't have his dog with him, he's going to jump in front of that train. I'm absolutely convinced. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 And then it's so sad because now he, he's got to convince Flag that he's trustworthy again. Because yeah. Flag, hey, dude, you just tried to kill me. What are you doing? And Flag keeps taking off on him. Mm -hmm. But it ends on a much, I mean, I don't want to say, I mean, again, it's the same thing as Bicycle Thieves. You know, he's got to figure out a situation the next day. But at least you know that he's still got his dog at the end. And, and the dog still has him. Yeah. I mean, that's the... I'm I'm getting teary-eyed just thinking about the ending again. Uh, it's... And, and yeah, you, you just... Even though you... Like you said, you, you know that this is going to be... this is, He's still going to struggle. He's still going to have a hard time of things. In this moment he realizes that the decision he made, he was making was not the answer. 
and yes. he will figure out the answer another day. The important thing is he is there, like you said, he is there for Flag. Flag is there for him. Like he, and that is that is what makes this so beautiful. That is what makes this. It's as bleak as these movies are, and they are very bleak. There's also moments that are absolutely wonderful. There's the wonderful moment where he's trying to panhandle for money, and he sets up flag as you know with the hat, and you know it's it's just a really funny little moment. And uh, you know he he plays it off when he sees one of his old colleagues or old old friends who is better off than he is, you know. But it's it's one of those the things. Whole, the whole thing with that scene is that, okay, so he sees a panhandler and he sees the guys getting money and he's like, all right, I need to survive. I want to get some money. Yeah. So he sets himself up for a first he attempts to panhandle. And then he turns his hand upside down and doesn't end up taking the money the guy gets yeah. to get to him. Yeah. And then he steps off because he's too proud for that. He's yeah. too proud to panhandle. He's like, hey, I've lived a life of dignity. Why am I why am I living why would I want to live this indignity now? So he sets up flag with the hat, which as you said is really funny. It's a really funny image. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it all resonates. It all feels real. Like one of my favorite parts of the movie is when he's finally leaving the 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 apartment he lives in. Like he has this conversation with the maid. And he's worried about her, and he says, hey, you know what? You're pregnant. You don't know who the father is. How are you going to make it? And she's like, look, I'll find a way. Yeah. You know, I don't want to pull a line from Jurassic Park, but, you know, life generally finds a way. Mm-hmm. And that's what she's imparting to him. She's my favorite character in the entire thing, because her view is very grounded. Her view yeah. is very, hey, listen, you know, we'll get through this. It's going to be rough, but I'll do what I need to do. And yeah. you know what? The whole thing with me getting thrown out once the landlady gets involved and finds out I'm pregnant, I'll cross that bridge when I come to it. If I figure out which one of these guys is it and he's going to help me out, that's great. If not, I'll find a way. Mm-hmm. And I love the fact that she's much younger than he is because I think that in Hollywood, they would have made him younger and her older and they would have tried to make a romance out of it, which yeah. would have been totally artificial. Oh, absolutely. He, he, he takes it as a paternal thing. Like he's like, he, he looks upon it as if he's her dad. She's got no yeah. family, you know? Yeah. And I think that's beautiful. And then getting back to the apartment real quick, I want to talk about the landlady for a second. So I don't think that we're supposed to judge. I mean, if you wanted to say that she's a little bit more of a villain here than we had in the bicycle thieves, I could buy that, but I don't really think she's the villain either. She's having all these swank, well, swank by their, definition of what swank would be parties and she's singing opera and i think the the thing is that she thinks that she's from a different class yeah than she is yeah she thinks that she is upper class and i think that she's actually probably in a worse position than umberto is and if you want to look at the rent so he keeps trying to give her parts of the rent and she says no i want it all or nothing because i'm going to remodel the room and this and that blah 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 yeah like He's behind. She probably legitimately needs that money to run that place. Yeah, probably. Now, 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 I say to myself, the whole thing with 
her and the opera and the singing and all that, that's probably also a distraction on her part. So she doesn't, like we talked about the thing with the Rita Hayworth poster earlier, that's a distraction. So she doesn't have to realize that she's basically a slumlord. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, she's running a rundown, gross apartment building with ants and stuff. Mm -hmm. She has people who can't pay, you know? And she has these swanky parties, and it's totally in controversy, in, in contrapost to what's going on with, with Alberto. But she's not really upper class at all. And I think that no, that's, you know, no. look at that. And it kind of humanizes her, that whole opera thing of hers. No, and that's, that's, that is an excellent point. It's like, look, she, she is not, she, she is not representative of the predatory type of landlords that we know now. She no. she really isn't. She isn't, you know, it's like, but it's funny because I, I think you're right. I, I think it is one of those things where it's like, she she is the counterpoint to Umberto, but really she is ultimately in the same situation as Umberto. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, but no, I mean, I, yeah, you, you do believe that she's, you know, to a certain extent, yes, she is being malicious, but she also does kind of have a point because of the fact that, like, she can't do what she wants to do to that that place if he doesn't pay on time. Um, yes. And, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, this is such a, you know, you're, you're right about the, uh, the relationship with Umberto and Maria, it's definitely one of a, a parental one on Umberto's part. It would have been completely wrong if it'd been romantic. Uh, you know, it to to connect the two again, it reminds me of Akiru. There's this moment there's a sequence with uh the Watanabe in uh Akiru with uh one of the I mean, I guess they're like secretaries or so at the, uh, you know, at the uh, government building that he's in. And she's just trying to get his stamp for uh, to resign and do something else. And he, she ends up spending the time with him. It's like normally there's an implication that society views that as that time that they spend together as, oh, he's just, you know, he's he's spending time with somebody much younger than he is. You get that implication that it's for Mac, even though it really isn't. But um I I love that I love that you you get the per societal perception of these characters through the reality of what they're going through and we know we we under again we understand why the choices they're making are being made. I just think that in the end, these are two of the most human films that I've ever seen. Yeah, and I'm really glad that we decided to discuss them. You know, because there's only so much room for us to discuss Carry to Rage. You know, yeah. <laughs> but I'm I'm really glad we chose. To Discuss these two films in particular because you know when I just mentioned the bicycle thief when we were joking around about that as an offhanded thing because I knew that was an important film and I'd, I'd seen it before. Yeah. But going back and rewatching that and watching Umberto D, I mean they are 
lenses on a terrible time in a particular country's world. Mm -hmm. A lot of the stuff they say is very relevant in our country 70 years later. And yeah. I think that the greatest, the greatest pieces of art can find themselves relevant at any time. Um, and I can empathize with a lot of the stuff that, that these guys were going through in these movies. Mm -hmm. And it's a hard road to hoe out there in the world. And you're talking about, you know, issues that keep these movies relevant. But I just think that as peaks into humanity and as peaks into how, and again, each of these movies is just a day in the life of these guys. Well, no, not, not technically. Humberto mm -hmm. has a couple weeks there. Yeah. But still, it's a very small portion of these men's lives. And you see why they did the things they did and some of the stuff they did they're not proud of. But in the end, you know, they go on to live another day and they're able to redeem themselves. And, you know, yeah. like, I kind of think that these guys probably had hard lives after this. But I'd like to think that both of them found a way because they had that kind of resilience and they had that redemption. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I'm... You know, it's like like I like I said, we were kind of joking about the idea of doing this uh episode of doing it neorealism as a discussion, but um at the same time I'm I'm so grateful that we're talking about these because not only did it give me a chance to revisit Bicycle Thieves, which I hadn't seen in a few years, but it gave me a chance to finally pull the trigger on watching Umberto D. And it that movie is just such a it's such a beautiful film and it's such a wonderful um it it's just such a wonderful look at humanity and i you know i mean it's it's one of those things where it's like that is that's the type of that's a type of film that i find myself gravitating gravitating towards the more i the older i get is the idea that you know dealing with life and death issues dealing with you know, I mean, and there are a lot of reasons in my own life that I I think about those a lot. Um, and uh, it's it's one of those things where I I love that both of these make you think about them in a way that is not artificial, that is very much of universal because of the fact that, like you said they're just as relevant relevant now as they were in the 40s and 50s when they were made and it's it's just a uh you know they're two beautiful stories and i mean yeah these were these were definitely hard hitting to uh go through but you know i mean it really it it really is something worth looking at movies that Movies that go to just touch us rather than just entertain us to get us to think about how we treat others, how other people live. And, you know, you, you certainly don't get that in the movies like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Carrie Rage, Carrie 2, or End of Days, or Island of Dr. Moreau. But, I mean, those are fun to talk about in different ways. Uh, this is fun to talk about because of the fact that in in a way in revealing in talking about these it feels like we're revealing a bit of ourselves in in the process and i i'm glad we finally we did have this discussion hey look escapism is fine 
there were times when I, I, I watched a million horror movies in my life. A lot of them were just garbage. And it's okay. It's okay to have those. But I think that when you look at movies like this, like I like to think of myself as a, you know, a, a having a broad spectrum of, of likes and dislikes in life, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that sometimes it's good to take a, st- a look at something like this or, you know, like I said, a couple months ago when Ray Liotta died, I watched um, Goodfellas, which I hadn't watched in years, you know? And it's just, it's, it's, it's important to me to know that films like these are out there and they really talk about the human experience in ways that, you know, escapism doesn't. Yeah. And I think that I'm, I very much appreciate you having me on as always, you know that. Oh yeah. But I also I also appreciate that we finally got a chance to discuss, you know, these two films mm-hmm. because, you know, I'd seen The Bicycle Thief and it's very depressing. <laughs> you know, it doesn't make me feel great at the end. I cry every time I watch it. But the thing is that, you know, I'd never seen Umberto D before. And now I have a greater appreciation for Zika and I want to watch some of his other films. And I think it moves, it, it, it pays forward, you know? I think that's great. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, you know, and, and the thing is, it's like, that's, that's one of the things that to bring it back to Scorsese and his, uh, his love of films. Cause I mean, ne- the, the neorealism, the, the films about neorealism in the neorealism, uh, aesthetic really were such a vital part of it. And, you know, I, I, I think that's one of the things that I love about those documentaries. Um, so much is that they've given me a bearing on where to take some of my interests in movies over the years. Like, I mean, you know, I, I, I've written before, I've talked about before how, you know, watching the crow the first time, it wasn't just a big lightning bolt for movie for me in terms of seeing something I had never really seen before. It was also something that, I wanted to search out what else Brandon Lee had done to see what we were sure. deprived of. It inspired me to follow Alex Perez's career. And then through a circumstance of somebody mentioning in their review, The Crow, it led me to Tarkovsky, who is a filmmaker who means a great deal to me. And, you know, I mean, that's the thing that I love. That's That's the thing I think a lot of the people give Scorsese shit about his views on superhero movies for are missing about Scorsese and what he ultimately is doing in terms of film preservation, in terms of, but also in terms of film knowledge. And, you know, these movies give you a, these, those documentaries and even Hugo give you an opportunity to, give you a starting point to go back and, hey, if you want to get into film more, if you want to follow film more, here's where you can start. And then you can go forwards, backwards, sideways, diagonal, however you want to do it and however it leads you to do it. You know, to appreciate film as an art form as opposed to film as a commodity. And as someone who appreciates film, as we both do, I just got to say that if a lot of the art of film is gone now and it's disappearing with every tentpole film that comes out, 
at least we have masters like the Sika and Scorsese to keep that, you know, alive for us. Even yeah. if even if the films are seventy years old, you know. Yeah, exactly. And um, I I'm grateful for Scorsese for putting Italian neorealism more in my uh, in in my trained mind as something that I want to explore more. And I appreciate you for uh, bringing this up, even in jest. That and you know us eventually following through with this discussion. I love this. Well, Brian, you know, I love talking with you about film. I'm, I'm honored and flattered every time you have me on. And thank you once again, because this was a great discussion. And we're certainly going to have another great discussion. I won't give it away, but let's put it this way. It's going to discuss horror in the 1980s, and it's going to discuss some of the great masters of horror and yes, I we, we will be discussing wait. good horror for a change. I cannot how, how odd is that gonna be for that? <laughs> and then we're going to go to something light like the uh, nine hour Holocaust documentary show up. <laughs> sure, why not? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I I I don't want to make light of that because I do want to see that, but yeah, I I I'm all for us going to something truly light after this. But, uh, yeah, Phil, as always, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you much for having me, my friend. I'd like to thank Phil, as always, for joining me on the podcast. It's so great to talk to him, and I cannot wait to get to our discussion on horror this year. It's going to be about three absolutely terrific and iconic films. I can't wait for that. Uh, that's going to be it for this episode of the Sonic Cinema Podcast. Check us out at Sonic Cinema Patreon at patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. The Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. Also, Google, Apple, Spotify, rate and review, subscribe, and uh, follow. And as always, my written work is at www.sonic-cinema.com. Thank you very much. I hope you have a good rest of the day. Mm-hmm.